I turn your attention this morning to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 12. There is another person that I have received word that may be here with us that we love very much, and that's Sister Teresa Fakaris. Is she here? There she is. God bless you, Sister Teresa. We love you. Amen. This is a great lady. I uh, was in our church for a number of years and is a tremendous soul winner and uh, is special to us, will always be. We love you, Sister Teresa, and uh, we're so glad you're with us this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 12. And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. If one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not easily broken. I'd like to speak this morning on this Vision Sunday with this title, The Arsenal of the End Time. The Arsenal of the of the end time. And you may be seated. Thank you for standing. On the night of December 29th, 1940, a few minutes before 9 p.m., Franklin Delano Roosevelt wheeled himself in his chair through the White House halls and into the diplomatic reception room on the first floor. He wore a gray wool suit and a face that for an eternal optimist appeared grim. An incongruous audience stood in the room. The president's mother was there, as were some White House guests, actor Clark Gable and Carol Lombard. Roosevelt was preparing to deliver an address that generations hence would deem one of the most important pieces of political rhetoric in modern history. It was called the Arsenal of Democracy. At that very moment in London, bombs were raining down from the night sky. Adolf Hitler's Air Force was subjecting London to the worst pounding since the start of the Battle of Britain, a night of terror planned specifically to steer attention away from Roosevelt's speech. America was at a crossroad, paralyzed by a weakened economy brought on by the horror of World War I and the Great Depression, of our 132 million citizens in America, only 48,000 earned more than $2,500 a year, which is the equivalent to $40,000 a year today. One-third of the homes had no running water. America had no unemployment insurance or antibiotics. Congress had passed numerous neutrality acts based on the idea that the oceans protected America's soil from foreign attack, like some gigantic moat. With no funding, the U.S. military had grown anemic, 18th in the world, fewer than 200,000 men compared with 7 million Nazi soldiers. The Army Air Corps, which preceded the Air Force that we know of today, had fewer than 1,300 combat planes, and most of them were technologically obsolete. Meanwhile, Hitler had been secretly building his military for years. Not just a lunatic, he was described by British spies at that time as an evil genius. The weapons in his armory are like nothing in history, they reported. A futuristic fighting force with unprecedented amounts of horsepower built on 
assembly lines and mounted on wheels and wings. It was the Luftwaffe that the Americans and British feared the most. The first ever fully crafted air force headed by Hermann Goring, a, a World War I ace pilot turned morphine addict who had spent time in a sanitarium locked in a straitjacket. By the late 1930s, German factories were producing more warplanes than the rest of the world put together. They were being made for one purpose, and that was to be used in war. As Hitler marched through Europe, French Premier Paul Renault said, Our forces were like walls of sand that a child puts up against waves on the seashore. It appeared that no one could stop Germany. So on October 22nd, 1940, the White House received a most chilling letter from a Jewish doctor from Baden, Germany, via a refugee activist with contacts inside of Nazi-occupied territory. It told of being taken by the Nazis and delivered to a concentration camp where thousands of Jews were herded like criminals behind barbed wire. The final sentence of the letter stated, and I quote, if the United States continues to work so slowly, the number of dead here is going to increase in a most deplorable manner, end of quote. In the White House, it began to sink in, the unparalleled depth of Hitler's evil and what it would take to defeat him. The president crystallized his plan. Hitler was fighting an engineer's war, and there was no escaping the maelstrom. To win, Roosevelt would need to harness the complete capacity of American industry, all of its resources, in a way that never before had been done, and he had to do it as soon as possible. As War Production Board Chief Donald Nelson put it, the whole industrial strength of the United States would be directed toward war making, would constitute power never dreamed of before in the history of Armageddon. It would be a struggle in which all of our strength would be needed and the penalty for being unable to use all of our strength would be the loss of everything that we had. Ladies and gentlemen, I say today that I believe that we as a body of fundamental Bible believers are at a similar place in 2018. We will either unite our efforts and produce an arsenal for the end time, or we will lose everything that we have. Roosevelt had worked on his speech during Christmas week of 1940, and now he delivered it flawlessly on December 29th from the diplomatic reception room in the White House. The microphone picking up the percussion of his lips and the turning of pages, Roosevelt began by saying, and I quote, the Nazi masters of Germany have made it clear that they intend not only to dominate all of life and thought in their own country, Roosevelt using the word Nazi for the first time in a public address, but also to enslave all of Europe and then to use the resources of Europe to dominate the rest of the world. He quoted Hitler's own words, I can beat any other power in the world. The president then called upon private industry, the heart of his defense plan. He said, guns, planes, ships, and many other things have to be built in the factories and the arsenals of America. They have to be produced by workers and managers and engineers with the aid of machines, which in turn have to be built by hundreds of thousands of workers throughout the land. 
As President of the United States, I call for that national effort. I call for it in the name of this nation which we love and honor and which we are privileged and proud to serve. He concluded by saying, we must be the great arsenal of democracy. In London, as the bombs dropped, civilians could be heard roaring with confidence from basement shelters empowered by Roosevelt's words. When I visited the still-burning ruins today, Churchill told Roosevelt the next morning, the spirit of the Londoners was as high as the first days of the indiscriminate bombing in September four months ago. In Berlin, Hitler's propaganda chief, Joseph Goebbels, scoffed at the American president's bravado. If the war was going to be a contest of industrial prowess, the Nazis believed they could not be beaten. What can the USA do faced with our arms capacity? He wrote in his diary. They can do us no harm. Roosevelt will never be able to produce as much as we who have the entire economic capacity of Europe at our disposal. The USA stands poised between war and peace. Roosevelt wants war. The people want peace. We must wait and see what he does next. That's what Joseph Goebbels put in his diary. But I wonder today as we sit here this morning in this church, I wonder if similar sentiments are not exchanged in hell as Satan and his generals assess the determination of the American born-again believer. Almost 15 months ago, I began to feel a shift in my spirit as God began to prepare me for the future of our church. I shared some of my thoughts with our staff in our annual retreat last year. From that meeting, we established a vision-casting team that has worked for almost a year in crafting our mission as a church, a unique church in the 21st century. We worked on creating our vision framework for the next 20 years. We started with our mission, our mandate. That is our guiding North Star. It provides direction, points everybody in one direction. And so the mission as a mandate is like the heartbeat of any organization. And it needs to answer the question of what are we doing? We decided on something after quite a bit of time, we decided on something that we can remember. And that was simply this statement. Love Jesus and people. Share Jesus with people. We can wrap it all up in that right there. We're going to love Jesus. We're going to exalt Jesus. We're going to magnify Jesus. We do that by worshiping Him, by living a life according to biblical principles. And we're going to love people, all people, regardless of where they come from, regardless of their walks of life, regardless of their socioeconomic levels, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of what language they speak. God died for every single human being on this planet. And then we believe that we have a mission that we must share Jesus with people. This thing is not for us to just sit on like some big ostrich egg. We are to tell everybody that we know that Jesus is the answer. He's not only the answer for you and I. He is the answer for the ills of our society. And then we focused on our values, our motives, the deepest level of what we consider to be our mission non-negotiables. They represent what we are not willing to sacrifice in order to accomplish the mission. 
We define these missional motives as the shared convictions that guide the actions and reveal the strengths of our church. They are the values that represent the conscious and the collective soul of our church because they express our most deeply held ideals. Motives are filters for decision-making and springboards for daily action. They are the constant reminder of what is most important to our church, and they must answer the question, why are we doing it? So we believe that these four things represent our core non-negotiable values. Number one, uncompromised word. We believe that everything in the Word of God is inspired by God Himself. We do not believe that the Word of God is antiquated, out of date, out of style, or something that is not relevant to our lives today. We believe that everything we need we can find in the Word of God, and we're not going to compromise the Word of God to meet popular culture. The second thing is spirit-filled worship. We didn't believe that God saved us for us all to come and sit here like we're in a library. We believe that God saved us for us to be able to express like they did in the Bible with a heart full of joy and thanksgiving and to lift our voice and to clap our hands and to magnify God with spirit-filled worship. The third thing that we are not willing to negotiate away is our overcoming walk. We believe that God will give us power to live above sin. We believe that the Holy Ghost will give us strength to live a life that is honorable before God. We know that our righteousness on our own is as a filthy rags, but we believe that when God saves us, hallelujah, He will give us the power to live above sin. He can change your life. He can take the desire of nicotine out of your heart. He can take the desire of drugs out of your heart, out of your mind. He can restore marriages and homes and young people and children and give us a life that lives above sin. And then the fourth thing that's part of our values that is non-negotiable is we believe that we have a mandate that we must evangelize the world. We must evangelize the world. God did not save us just for our own personal comfort and well-being. We believe in uncompromised words, spirit-filled worship, overcoming walk, and evangelize the world. The next stage that we went to was our map or our strategy. If you have a map, they tell you, the effectiveness of your mission will go through the roof. This map or strategy picture is like a container that holds all the church activities in one meaningful whole. The word map implies that the strategy serves as both a locator and a guide. Think of it like the you are here map that you see maybe at the mall or at an airport. It orients you in the middle of a three-story, 100-store complex. Then it helps you find your way by showing you where you are now and what's around you. Well, the map should do the same thing for a church. It should orient us in the complexity of a church environment and guide us to our next step. It should answer the question, how are we doing it? We believe we could define it by drawing a map that included three things. Number one, experience God. We want people to know that when they come to the First Pentecostal Church, you're going to experience God. I'm sure there are better singers and better speakers and bigger buildings, but we believe that when you come to the First Pentecostal Church, you're going to feel God and you're going to know it's God. Hallelujah! 
I told our church, we should be like NFL referees. If we do our job right, we should be invisible and the focus should be on God. If an NFL referee does his job right, the focus is on the game and that's what the conversation is about. If we do our job right, the focus ought to be on him and lifting up God in all that we do and believing that God still works in the hearts of humanity. And next, we believe that you can connect with people and we're going to endeavor to do that and give our opportunities and activities where people can connect one with another and then impact the world. And so when you come to First Pentecostal Church, this will be the map. Experience God. That's what happens when you're in these services. That's what happens when you're filled with the Spirit. Connect with people. That's what happens when you get involved in small groups and you get involved in some of the things we're going to introduce you to. What happens when you get involved in our Next Steps classes. And then the third thing is impact the world. We are crazy enough to believe here at First Pentecostal Church that we can make a difference in the world. We don't believe that we are just living unto ourselves and that we're just confined here to this one particular place. We believe that we can change the world through our prayers, through our sacrifice, through our giving, through our desire to make a difference. We can and we are impacting the world. The next thing we moved to were the measures or the missional life marks. The things sometimes in a business setting it's referred to as metrics. How do we measure success at our church? What does a disciple of Christ look like at First Pentecostal Church? What does success look like at FPC? It should answer the question, when are we successful? We believe we were able to define what those metrics are, those measurables are, which is not always an easy thing to do in a spiritual environment like a church. But we believe there are five things that we can do to determine whether we're succeeding or not. And that is coming, conversion, contribute, classes, and consecration. Coming, and you're going to see this as we go forward. I'll explain more of this in just a moment. But coming is where we define what it is that people are actively involved in with their attendance. Conversions is people repenting of their sins, being baptized in Jesus' name, being filled with the Holy Ghost. Contribute are people that are giving financially, either in go or in tithes or in offerings. Classes, number of people getting involved in home Bible studies, number of people getting involved in our home groups, number of people getting involved in our Next Steps classes, and so forth. Consecration, we're going to start a thing at the first of the year where we are all believing that we will get on board with specifically having daily devotions in our life. Church has got to be more than being in this building on a Sunday morning. It has to be an everyday activity. It's got to be reading the Word of God every day. It's got to be praying every day. It's got to be fasting so we keep our flesh in submission. And then our vision proper. This part turns the corner to work on the frame not just what is around the edges, but what is actually in the middle. Using uh, perhaps the analogy of a puzzle, when we got through these four stages, we believed that we had the four edges of our frame. And you know how it is when you put together a jigsaw puzzle, you work on the edges first because they got those straight edges. But then at some point, you get all that filled, you got to start working on the middle part. And that's not always as easy. So we had to start putting together all of those individual jigsaw pieces together and we define that as vision proper. We begin by anchoring the vision pathway, not in the future first, but in the past. 
What has God always been up to at First Pentecostal Church? What is God specifically doing in our local context? We must discover our kingdom concept as the way that our church glorifies God and makes disciples. We break vision proper into two parts. What we refer to as the mission mountaintop. In other words, where is it that God is taking us? And then the second part is our milestones. How do we implement the vision? After much time of going through this, trying to take all of these different concepts and breaking them down, this is something that a group of 15 people worked on the entire year of 2017. We came up to what will now become our motto for the very near future and perhaps far future. And that is simply this. This is what we believe is the vision for First Pentecostal Church. All Jesus. We believe it is all in Jesus. We believe that when you've said the name of Jesus, you've said it all. We pray for the sick in the name of Jesus. We baptize in the name of Jesus. We cast out devils in the name of Jesus. It's all in Jesus. That's what the New Testament church had in the book of Acts. And that's what God intends for us to have in the 21st century. We're not going to shy away from that. We believe it's all in the name of Jesus. We're not ashamed of the name of Jesus. We're going to declare the name of Jesus in our public schools and on our jobs and in the city hall and whatever environment we're in. We are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All Jesus, and secondly, all nations. We believe the gospel is to go to all nations. In fact, we look at what the Lord gives us as the timepiece for the end time, and we recognize that it is directly tied to the gospel being taken to all the world. So we believe that our mission as a church is that we have a responsibility to take the gospel to the entire world. That's why last Sunday we had our go commitments and what we want to do, if you weren't here last Sunday, make sure you pick up uh, one of the books that's provided for you in the foyers. And you'll look through that and you'll see what our mission is as a local church. We are partnering with 85 missionaries right now and we believe it will be closer to 100 by the end of 2018. I received word from our global missions uh, secretary, uh, Scotty Slade in Madrid, Spain a couple of days ago. He said, we are now in 213 countries around the world. We have apostolic missionaries in 213 countries around the world. Ladies and gentlemen, we believe we have a mission to take this gospel to all nations. And if we do, God will bless us right here at First Pentecostal Church. And then the third part of our motto is all in. All Jesus, all nations, all in. And maybe if you're new to the First Pentecostal Church, I can reiterate this. We don't just go to church as a hobby. We do not go to church to see what business contacts we can make within our community. We are not here to try to increase our sphere of influence. We are here because it is in Him that we live and move and have our being. 
Being in the right church is more important than being in the right school. Being in the right church is more important than being on the right job, in the right house, in the right community. Everything that we do is wrapped up in our faith in Jesus Christ. And so we are determined that we move toward total commitment. How are we going to implement this vision? What are those goals? Well, we talked about it. You're going to see throughout the course of 2018 on this big screen behind me. You're going to see the letters all in. All in has five letters. That represents those five goals that we talked about. Coming, contributing, classes, consecration, and conversions. How are we going to measure that? We are going to measure all of our attendance and services throughout the week. That is going to be not only in-house, but also all of our outreach activities. And so then we will be able to see on a weekly basis what our total impact is. We're going to take those monthly totals and then we're going to divide them by the number of weeks in that month. And we're going to have averages for the week in these uh, big signs behind us that will be on the big screen. And it will be given to us digitally every month throughout 2018. It will track whether we're moving forward or backward. We will start where we are right now and that is at 1,500. There are 1,500 actual attendances throughout the course of a week right now at First Pentecostal Church. We believe that before the end of 2018, that number will go to 2,500 in one year. The next will be contributing, and we will figure out what this is. We will take our monthly totals, and we will divide it by the number of weeks, and what we are looking at is the total number of people contributing. We will start with 100, and we believe that we will end at 200. That means that on a weekly basis, there are at least 200 people and families that are contributing to the ministry at the First Pentecostal Church. The next will be classes, which includes home Bible studies and next steps. We will start at 100. That's not just classes being offered, but that is also the number of people in those classes. So if one person is teaching six people, that is six specific classes being taught divided by the number of individuals. We'll start at 100 and work our way to 200. Consecration. In your bulletin, at the first of the year in 2018, there will be a perforated edge. You're going to fill out this card and it's going to have the number of people in our church that will commit to praying 15 minutes a day, reading their Bible 15 chapters a week and volunteering in a ministry at this church. We believe that we can start with an army of 300 consecrated, committed people in 2018. But before year 2018 is over, we believe we will be at 500 people that are committed to living a consecrated life because we commit to being all in. And then will come conversions, people being filled with the Holy Ghost, people being baptized in Jesus' name. We are going to start with a goal of having a weekly goal of five per week. That means that we would have on some months 20 and on some 25, depending on if there's four or five weeks in that month. But we believe that we can go from five to 25. And on the third week of each month, we will give you those totals for the preceding month, and they will be 
on the screen behind us. And every month we will report our progress. We believe that this is a way that we can see that we are all Jesus, all nations, and all in. As we were preparing this path throughout the course of the last several months and asking for God's direction, God started doing some things that we were not aware of. He started moving the pieces into place for us to come together as a church and to be unified in all of our ministries. First, Brother George Long in the Spanish campus came to us, and they are here this morning. We love our Spanish ministry. Let's give them a hand. Thankful for the great work that they do in reaching our Spanish community. They expressed an interest in coming back to the main campus, having their own class during our Sunday school portion, which is 10 to 1045 over in the Life Center, and then being here at the main campus for our morning worship service, and they have done that for several months. They expressed an interest in being reunited back with the body of believers at First Pentecostal Church, and I believe that that was of the Lord. Then the Beachside leadership came to us and expressed a desire to reunite that campus with our main campus, and they will be doing that as of next week will be their last service on the Beachside campus. Following that, many of our home group leaders started expressing a desire to discontinue hosting home groups and to possibly move them to the main campus. Then the Southwest group agreed to join back with the main campus, and I will be going over there this afternoon at 2 o'clock and sharing this vision with them also. At this point, I could tell that God was up to something. We knew it was crucial to get back to the basics of teaching home Bible studies and consolidating our ministries. We look at what we could do to bring more of a church together in prayer. And we decided that we believe it is necessary to consolidate our Monday night prayer meeting with our Wednesday night service. So starting at the first of the year, there will not be Monday night prayer, but prayer will begin at 7 p.m. on Wednesday nights. The lights will be down in this auditorium. We're going to come together and we're going to pray. It's not going to be pre-service activity where we all wander around and say hello to each other. We're going to pray. And we're going to keep praying until we're done praying. It may be at 7.30. It may be at 7.45. It may be at 8 o'clock. But when we're through praying, there will not be any singing. There will not be any preliminaries. There will be no offering taken. There will simply be a Bible study. After we are through praying on Wednesday nights, we will go right into our Bible studies. On the last Wednesday of each month, and your program that you have, I believe everybody has one of these that says Vision Sunday. All of these different changes for 2018 are in this program. But at the end of each month, on the last Wednesday of each month, when we would normally do home friendship groups, we are now doing life groups. They will be held here at the church. There will be different groups that meet all over this building and the other building and our campus. And we will start in January on our first life group, and it deals with the subject of daring faith. We believe that God confirmed this. As Brother Herring was with us a couple of weeks ago and preached about faith and where God is wanting to take this church. I believe that in 2018, as the people of God focus on all Jesus, all nations, and all in, that we are going to see God do miraculous miracles in our midst. Then we looked at our last five years. And we realized that we have been bumping up against 80% capacity in our Palm Bay auditorium. 
They tell us that the church will not grow more than 80% of what the building is able to hold. With the other campuses and ministries coming back together, we knew that we needed to add another service to continue to grow. So at the first of the year, we are adding a new 8.30 a.m. service at the very first of the year. Everything at, everything at 10 o'clock will remain the same as it is now. Everything at 10.45 will remain the same as it is now. The only thing is that at 8.30 a.m., we will have a service that will be the same as our 10.45 morning worship service. It will have the same preacher, it will have the same message, and it will have the same songs. It will literally be the same service at 8.30 that we have at 10.45. What will change is that some can come at 8.30 and stay for the Sunday school teaching at 10 o'clock and then leave after that, or some can come and have 10 o'clock service with the Sunday school and then be in the 1045 morning worship service. In both the 8.30 a.m. service and in the 10.45 a.m. service, we will offer children's church for our children. We do know that this is not a long-term solution. As we have already seen in the things that I mentioned to you earlier today, after a while, all of us as a church like to come together. We at First Pentecostal Church are not the same as most other churches. We don't believe that you can do cookie-cutter services. Every service, no matter how hard you try, is going to be different because we serve a God, hallelujah, that's not going to be confined to our services or our programs. The multiple services is simply a short-term solution. We will still have our Sunday evening service as well. But... At the first of the year, we are going to hire architects and engineers and see if we can reconfigure our auditorium so that we can add 300 seats or more. We're going to update our bathrooms, our hallways, our carpet, new theater seats throughout this entire auditorium. We're going to expand both foyers in the front and the back so that we will glass in all of the patio areas. We will spend the entire year of 2018 on this project, and then we have a goal of starting construction in 2019. The best part of this is that we believe that we can do all of this without going in debt. Brother Herring was with us a couple of weeks ago and we were dismissing the service and people were gathered around the altar on a Sunday night. He didn't know about these plans and maybe, Brother Tyler, you can put up those plans of what the auditorium will look like with those risers in. But he told me, he didn't know about these plans, but when we were shouting unto the Lord at the end of the service, I turned and we said, you're dismissed. And I turned and when I did, Brother Herring came up to me and he said, just as the church was shouting, he said, I saw risers in the back and they were full of people and they were all shouting unto the Lord. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
Obviously, this will require all of us coming together. All Jesus, all nations, all in. It will require all of us to fully commit. But the strengthening and the growing of our base will cause us to win the war, not only at home, but expand us to greater victory and other ministries beyond these walls. The Bible says that one can put to flight a thousand and two can put to flight 10,000 if God is on our side. Ladies and gentlemen, God is on the side of the righteous. Where people will commit to living righteous, godly lives. Where people will commit to living according to biblical principles. Ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you with the utmost confidence, that is the side that the Lord is on. 1 Samuel 14 tells the story of Jonathan, the king's son and his armor bearer, taking on an entire garrison of Philistines up on a hill. The garrison was so intimidating and there were so many soldiers that they couldn't number them all. Jonathan and his armor bearer, the Bible says, climbed up the mountain on their hands and knees and fought back to bring victory. They started fighting back to back with the sword cleaving to their hands until the Philistines started to run and started to flee. And the Lord gave two men united together a victory against thousands. The reason is that Jonathan was given a revelation by God before the battle. This is what he said, and I quote from 1 Samuel 14, 6. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over under the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Here's the revelation. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Ladies and gentlemen, God does not need many to win. He just needs a few that are unified together. So the wise man writing in Ecclesiastes said that a threefold cord is not easily broken. The first weapon in our end time arsenal is unity. Everybody say unity. God is calling First Pentecostal Church together to gather strength through unity. America and the allied nations won the war because it harnessed its greatest resource, people. America. Like never before and maybe never since, America began to ration important materials in every home. All steel was conserved for military use. Americans participated in scrap drives to salvage critical materials. An old radiator provided enough steel to make 17 rifles. Parts were taken from common household items to produce needed war munitions. 40% of Americans in the early 40s grew their own food in what was called victory gardens so that the food supply could go to the soldiers. Nearly one-fourth of all Americans relocated during the war to work in the industrial plants. America came together between 1940 and 1945. Six million women joined the workforce. They took on jobs as welders and riveters and chemists and engineers. Maybe they had been told 
that they couldn't do it. But they proved to the rest of the world they could do it. Maybe the devil's trying to convince you, you can't teach a Bible study. You can't be a soul winner. You can't pray somebody through to the Holy Ghost. But I believe God's going to show us that everybody, everybody coming together can make a difference. The entire nation came together for a common cause in the early 1940s. And that common cause was victory. This unity was not without cost. Some 8.9 million labor accidents occurred during the war, claiming more than 75,000 lives and disabling thousands more as the U.S. production soldiers risked their lives in the factories to guarantee victory for allied forces abroad. Because, ladies and gentlemen, not only do we need unity, but the second weapon in our arsenal is sacrifice. Sacrifice. In February of 1942, the automobile plants in Detroit stopped making cars. And they started building Sherman tanks and jeeps and bombers. Why? Because we recognized we were in a war. And luxury and convenience didn't matter. Survival is what mattered. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in a spiritual war in 2017 and 18. And what matters most is that we are saved. That our children are saved. That our homes are protected. William Knudsen immigrated from Denmark at 20 years old and $30 in his pocket on a cold day in February 1900. He'd worked his way up through sweeping floors and work on assembly lines. He's the guy who actually worked for Ford Motor Company and invented the assembly line. But at some point he crossed up with Henry Ford and he left Henry Ford and they swooped him up over at General Motors. General Motors was in crisis. They called him in. They said, William, we want you to work for us. We want you to just help out. We got some troubles. We need to turn Chevrolet around. Nobody knows production like you. Can you help us? He said, sure. He said, how much money is it going to take? He goes, I don't know. It doesn't matter to me. They said, how much did you make it Ford? He said, $50,000. This was in 1940 now, ladies and gentlemen. They said, okay, we'll tell you what. We'll start you out at $6,000 a year. He said it didn't matter. He knew it wouldn't matter. And he was right because within a month, he was CEO of Chevrolet and making $50,000 a year. When Roosevelt asked, who are the top three industrial production men in America? His advisors told him, first, William Knudsen. Next, William Knudsen. Third, William Knudsen. Roosevelt called him up and said, William, I need you to quit General Motors, and I need you to take charge of the War Resources Board and oversee America building an arsenal that will give us a victory. We need a modern Air Force, a two-ocean Navy, and an army that's unstoppable, and we need it now. <laughs> and Hudson said, I'll do it, Mr. President. The president said, by the way, do you want to know your salary? He said, sure. He said, your salary is a dollar a year. William Knudsen said, yes, Mr. President. It is said that in the four terms 
that Roosevelt served as the President of the United States, that this was the single greatest decision he made. Because William Knudsen, who was not even born in America, but moved here at 20 years old and $30 in his pocket, was a giant among men and produced the greatest fighting for force that the world has ever known in record time. Edsel Ford, the president of Ford Motor Company, and Henry Ford's son, had a vision as the nation began to mobilize to create a factory in Ypsilanti, Michigan, so large that it could produce B-24 bombers. The plant was called Willow Run, and the stress of the project eroded Edsel Ford's health to the point that he died in 1943. But Willow Run, his vision, what he sacrificed his own health for, was a factory that produced a B-24 bomber at an astonishing rate of one every hour. One plant. It gave us the ability to dominate the skies over Europe. Ladies and gentlemen, sacrifice and unity gave us victory in World War II, and it is what will give us victory in 2018. But the scripture says that a threefold cord is not easily broken. So the third cord is commitment. I believe the Lord is calling on his church to be fully committed to this war. This is the war for our survival. This is the war for our salvation. It is the war for our homes and our families, and we must be fully committed. All in. This is the vision for us. All Jesus, all nations, all in. And ladies and gentlemen, this is what Jesus called on. He called on total commitment. When he spoke to his followers in Luke chapter 9 and said, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. The disciples... The followers of Christ, the apostolic fathers, ladies and gentlemen, they started out this thing, this movement, by giving their life for this cause. And this movement started out with unity, sacrifice, and commitment. And ladies and gentlemen, it is our arsenal to give us victory in the end time. Would you stand to your feet? I wonder if you'd lift your hands and your voices right now, and would you shout with the voice of triumph? church. We refuse to just go through the motions. We commit with all of our life, strength, and breath.
In the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I want to ask you a question this morning. I want you to vote with your feet. Are you all in? Are you fully committed? If you are and you commit to this vision and to this ministry, I don't want you to feel any peer pressure. If you don't feel it, don't move. But if you say, I fully commit to this, Pastor, I want you to step out of where you're standing. I want you to move toward the front. If you can't get to the front, move out into the aisle. If you are willing this morning to commit and to say, I'm not going to just go through the motions, but I'm going to give it everything that I've got, Pastor. You can count on me. We're all in. We have no other option. We're not looking to some other parachute that we can pull that will somehow give us a somehow a different choice or a different path to follow. When the Lord turned to His followers and said, Will you too leave? They said, To whom else can we go? For you have the words of everlasting life. I rise today to declare... We have no other options. We have no other plan. It's all in Him. Those of you that have moved into the aisle, I thank you. Thank you for fully committing. I believe that this right here is an army that God is going to raise up. And we're going to see things like we never have before. But the very first thing that's going to happen is that the enemy is going to try to attack you and your mind and your home and your marriage. I want to pray right now for this group of people that are in the aisles and in this altar. I want to pray first of all and I want to ask that God would protect you and keep you right now. Would you raise your hands, Lord? You have instructed us in your word that we can go before the throne of grace with boldness and find help in a time of need. I'm asking you, Lord, right now in the name of Jesus, let no weapon formed against them prosper. Let no intimidation from the enemy stop us from accomplishing what you have put in our hearts and in our minds. You are giving us, Lord, an arsenal. You have put it before us, oh God. And I'm asking you to protect every home, every life, every body. I am asking for strength, Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ. Let your angels encamp round about us. Put up a hedge of protection, God, about your people. Let nothing dissuade us, Lord. Let nothing discourage us, oh God.
The second thing that I want to pray for today is boldness. As I was studying all about how America responded in World War II, one of the biggest things that kept jumping out at me is how the enemy underestimated the resolve of the American people. There was one general in Japan that offered a word of caution, but he was simply overruled by his supervisors. He said, I'm afraid if we attack him in Pearl Harbor, we will wake up a sleeping giant. Ladies and gentlemen, I wish you could see in the spirit world how powerful this church is, how powerful your prayers are. The enemy is hoping that he doesn't wake up a sleeping giant. But I'm asking that God would give us holy boldness like never before. Oh, I feel it in the spirit. Would you lift your hands and would you let me pray over you right now? Lord, I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would give boldness to your people. That you would allow us to see, oh God, that you have put us in this spot, in this place, for this certain time. You have brought us into the kingdom for such a time as this. And Lord, your church is not weak, it's not frail, it's not sick or anemic. But Lord, we have our strength through you, oh God. I'm asking that there be boldness upon every man and woman, boy and girl. Boldness to proclaim this gospel. Boldness to share this gospel. Let us not operate in fear or insecurity. But, oh God, let there be something that would stir up in our hearts and minds. Let there be a spiritual indignation that would rise up and say, Devil, you're not going to win. Not on my watch. Not in my heart. Not in this place. In the name of Jesus. 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 Come on, I feel the Holy Ghost moving right now. I want you to begin to believe you're not going to be sick all your life. God's going to heal you. You're not going to be discouraged or despondent or depressed. God's going to give you joy. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. No weapon formed against us can prosper. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We're going to sing this song in just a minute, but before we do, I want to pray one more prayer. I feel this with all of my heart. Here's what I want us to pray for. I want us to pray that God would give us a sense of joy and expectation. Here's what I want us to war against. I want us to war against our own flesh that will put us in a posture of wanting to wait and see. And instead of that, I want us to bust through that and I want us to step into the miracle by saying, I can't wait, I can already see it through the eye of faith. 
I get joy when I think about what He's done for me. I can see my children being saved. I can see my strength being restored. I can see God filling up my checking account. I can see the witness of heaven opening up and blessings. Come on, would you pray that right now? Would you lift your hands right now in the name of Jesus? Joy and expectation. We expect to see it. Jesus' name. Can't stop. 